0: want to make a podcast, let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters. And it's called Spotify for podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for podcasters is completely free. So, launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, episode number 21.
1: Alpha 2. Alpha 2. Is to you. We're 040, clear We're clear for takeoff. Clear for the airspace. Fire check. 2. Nine, I'm just like completely dazed and like thrown back in my seat, and there's just paper flying everywhere. I'm like, what the, you know, and, and, uh, I just pull back on the stick to get, to get away from the ground. And that's when I'm like, I kind of look around, I'm like, shit, my canopy's gone. Like, that doesn't make sense, you know, like, so, um, lower my seat to get out of the wind blast and then so then i can at least get my wits about it like i said it felt like a sucker punch Uh,
0: that's the voice of my guest today major brett devries he's an a10 pilot guardsman up in michigan and in that clip he's talking about the time his canopy was blown off the jet during a strafe quite an interesting story to say the least we're going to dig into that as well as his aviation career before we get rolling into the podcast just a few admin notes thanks to all those who have subscribed and left a rating and a review over on itunes that definitely helps the podcast out. Also, like to thank my Patreon supporters. That helps me keep the podcast going. And I like to thank Wingman Watch for sponsoring this episode. Swing over to wingmanwatch.com. You'll see some incredible timepieces. They're perfect for the holiday season. If you're a group and want to build a watch for your organization, again, swing over to wingmanwatch.com. They'll get everything started. All you have to do is just provide some initial inspiration, and they'll take it from start to finish and handle all the logistics. Again, wingmanwatch.com. With all the admin knocked out, let's get into the episode with Major Brett Tuwot DeVries. Well, sweet. We'll get rolling here. Tuwot, right. thanks for joining me on the podcast today. As we get rolling into this, would you kind of just give everyone like a 30-second elevator pitch of who you are and what you're doing today, and then we'll dive into your career?
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I'm a major in the Michigan International Guard flying the A-10s uh, part-time and then a full-time airline pilot. Uh, fly the A320 uh, captain there. And uh, that's pretty much pretty much it. I got 19 years in with the Guard. Uh, I'm just riding out to the end of, to get to my 20 and then I'll be punching that, nice. that ticket and uh, moving on from that.
0: So. Yeah, congrats. That's awesome, man. Yeah.
1: Uh,
0: I would like to kind of talk about the Guard aspect. I do get a lot of people that ask me hey, I want to become a pilot and I wanted to go into the Guard or Reserve. Your path, obviously, I think is the like more of the norm and that would be a generalized statement, but you were prior enlisted and then transitioned to officer. Can you kind of tell me a little bit about that process and what it was like for you?
1: Yeah, sure. So I had a, a pretty good leg up on most, most people don't even know about the Guard or how it works. Just I found out from going to UPT and everything. Um, so my dad was active duty, flew F-15s and F-5s, uh, got out of the active duty, went to the guard in Michigan to the squadron I'm in, uh, flew Vipers there and uh, retired from there. So going through uh, growing up, I saw him flying jets. I knew that's what I wanted to do. And when I was like a senior in high school, he's like, all right, man, if you really want to do that, uh, here's the path I recommend. I did active duty. I would strongly recommend you try to get a guard slot. And it's a lot more flexible. And that's just, you know, for... For whatever reasons in his personal career, he, he was like, That that's the route I would recommend. Yeah. Uh so he we went out there and he saw some buddies that were flying out there, got me into uh life sport, uh now known as AFE. Uh, and then he's like, All right, that's this is where I end, and it's it's all in your hands now. And uh so I enlisted, joined, went off to basic training after high school, and then uh through college, uh was a part-time guardsman working in the uh in the fighter squadron. Um and then my senior year of college is where like once you're in that six months from graduating, they'll let you start, uh, applying. Uh, we just so happens like we have a pilot slot open right when I get in that window. Uh, so I interviewed, got that job. And then after I graduated from college, um, had to do a quick deployment to Balad, uh, as a life support uh, technician. And then I went off to officer school and all that from there.
0: Dude, I showed the pilot training and there were like four guardsmen in my pilot training class. I'm yeah. Like, oh yeah, I'm going to go fly a Viper. I'm going to go fly KC-135. And that was the first time that I realized the Guard and Reserve existed really and how it worked. I'm like, how do you already know what you're going to go do? So it is a really, I don't know if it's a well-kept secret, but it's a great path and another, obviously, way to get into the cockpit and serve your country and do in a little bit different fashion.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure.
0: Um, so. But as an you know A-10 Guardsman, you're part-time. I know you do some full-time work in there. You're obviously the, the airman citizen, you deploy in there a few times flying the, the mighty hog, right? Uh, yeah,
1: yeah. I done, uh, as it, flying wise in the A I've done uh, two Afghanistan and then one to Kuwait for, uh, for OIR. So we're kind of the guard is, you know, we're, we're right in there with a the deployment cycle with active duty. The only difference being that traditionally we do like a three month versus six month deployment, um, in that. Uh, and that's kind of gone back and forth. We did one six month, uh, to Kuwait. And that was just to, to prove that the guard could do what the active duty could do, I guess. <laughs> but I don't know that that was successful on any end, but, uh, we're back to the three month deployment window now. So
0: that's a sweet spot.
1: Yeah. But yeah, it's the same. So, I mean, you, you stay CMR, the, the story requirements are a little less than an active duty squadron, Um, but you still, you got CMR, uh, requirements and, you know, you got the rat tasking message and all the all the requirements that any active duty squadron has, there's a guard column in there as well to make, make sure that uh, your squadron is, is uh, is CMR and greened up to, to go to combat.
0: Yeah, the CMR combat mission ready. So that's all, all the qualifications and the, the currencies that you need in order to go out there and fly your weapon system for those that aren't familiar with that term. But, um, it, which I imagine it presents some challenges, uh, between flying an A320 bouncing back and forth between civilian life and the guard
1: life, making
0: sure you have those currencies. How is that balance for you?
1: Yeah, no doubt. So that you know, one thing the guard does pretty well, I think, is so you come home from UPT or, or I'm sorry, you come home from your B course and you get you know two to three years usually of full time flying. And the, the the idea would be at least a two ship. You know, I think of the Hog is different than the Viper. We do a two ship and a four ship separate upgrades. Um, but you at least want to get a guy through a two ship and ideally through a four ship qual while he's he or she is still out there full time. Uh, and then they. You know, can choose whether they want to pursue full-time guard career or go to the airlines, and you know, it's usually like the inverse of the economy. And right, so like right now, getting a full-time guard slot is like impossible. But uh, a year and a half <laughs> ago, like our lieutenants were getting the full-time slots because nobody wanted them. So, um, so, but to, to maintain that proficiency, that's why you really got to nail down when uh, when someone comes back from pilot training to, to build the um, the foundation so they can go off and then be able to come back and uh, not try to do a whole lot of upgrades in a, in a part-time status. Cause that, that, that's very challenging. So for me, um, I'm going I'm an instructor and a CFI uh, evaluator and it. That, that's very challenging as the, as the aircraft evolves, um, to kind of switch cockpits and everything is a big challenge. And I've, I've kind of had to dial back a little bit on my instruction because I'm just, I, I can't stay up to, up to date on all the latest, uh, uh ttps and the latest technology that we have in tactics in the a10 to be able to you know effectively instruct that to a to a young guy but uh you know and then when you go to deploy you usually come out for about two months beforehand and you fly a bunch to to kind of get spin up spun up and get caught up and and you know get get ready to go but uh you, you always feel like you're, you're one step behind i don't know maybe that's the same thing in active duty because you you're out you know active duty doesn't seems like they do a lot of other admin type of jobs that we don't have to do as a part-time <laughs> guardsman so I don't know. There, there's trade-offs, I guess, but it definitely uh, is a unique set of challenges, uh, I guess. But
0: yeah, I think for me, so I, I hung it up after I left active duty and now doing a non-flying job in the reserves. But my biggest fear was the fact of being the guy who's going to get drug around the airspace or the it just just keeping current. And also, I did demo for the last two years, and all the changes that happened in the Viper in that two years alone. I mean, the tactics changed, the the software changed. That's a lot to keep up with. And I imagine you know, if you're doing that back and forth for an entire career, like you said, it presents some unique challenges.
1: Yeah, for sure. But it's, it's, um, you know, like I said, anytime we're going to go TDY, anytime we're going to deploy, um, there, there's resources available to come out there. And, um, you know, you spend a month or two full time out there just flying in the sim and the books and, and trying to get, get caught up and, and get up to speed on everything. So,
0: yeah, no doubt. Well, one cool thing I like about the Air Force is the fact that it's it's a small world. So Shiv, the A-10 demo pilot, connected us. Um, we're going to talk about one of your sorties in particular a little bit later in the podcast. But again, talk before we started hitting record here. Uh, I was in Gaylord, Michigan, the only time I've ever been in Michigan uh, in my entire life, about a month before you had a significant event in the A-10, uh, again, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. But backing up prior to that, Operation Inherent Resolve. You and I, again, were kind of texting back and forth. We high-fived. Uh, I was leaving and you were coming in. But part of that is ripping out with the unit that you're replacing and doing some exchange or flying with the guys who've been in theater to kind of get the uh, the knowledge passed on. So my second to last sortie, I would say, was one that got the blood pressure going, A-10 through a fan blade through a motor, uh, and they ended up diverting into Al-Assad. The initial radio call we got from them was, hey, I'm going to get out of the jet. Um, and then just trying to limp this A-10 in there. Fortunately, it worked out, but um, my operation here Resolve time was a pretty busy time. I imagine you guys were pretty busy as well.
1: Yeah, so when – yes, yeah, so we got there, and we ripped out the guard squadron that, that you were flying with while you guys were there. Um, and we were – you know, our our role in that fight, was kind of twofold, but a big one was for 24 hour combat search and rescue, uh, airborne coverage. And so we found our way where we normally wouldn't be in a lot of strike package working with you guys and, and a lot of the other partner forces, not at all what we normally do being in a strike package, but as we would go into Syria and in, in areas out there, they wanted to have Sandy ones, uh, on station so that we could respond quickly to, to any downed air crew. So that, that kind of you know, brought us into a lot of, uh, part of the fight that we wouldn't normally be in. But then, uh, also with that, we were also doing, um, you know, our, our traditional casts. And while we were there, it was mostly, uh, mostly of a Ramadi is where it fell. Um, and that's where we did most of our work while, while we were there. Uh, we, we, you know, we weren't flying into Mosul or anything like that yet while we were there, but we were plenty busy, um, doing, doing all that stuff. And it was, you know, I imagine it's probably the same for you. We were flying every other day, um, you know, blitzing up from Kuwait two hour and a half to two hours just to even get to the AO, you know, yeah. and then you do a three to four hour bowl and two to you know, three hours home. So we're, like my average uh, story length there was like a 7.8 yeah. um, every other day for six months. I mean, it was a grind, but it was awesome. You know, as, as I'm sure you can attest to, we were, we were busy, we were shooting, you know, every weapon capable in the A-10 Mavericks to, you know, our first time anyone dropped a GB 54 in combat was our squadron, like creating makeshift profiles out of a, a traditional JDM because it hadn't even, like, it had just left the 422, and they're like, here, here's this GB54. You guys can try this out there and, and, <laughs> and let it, you know, let us know how it works, type of thing. So um, that was uh, it was a very uh, very exciting and, and, you know, for the most part, a very uh, successful deployment for us in, in our squadron.
0: The, the C Star aspect of it, that, that's a big piece. I know, um, you know, for us, when we were there, especially in the last half hour deployment, it was a big focal point. So one of the Jordanian pilots we flew with, and actually, we had uh, one of our, our, our wing patch was the flight lead or the mission commander that day who ended up sparing out twice um, and having to pass it off to the Raptors. But uh, he, was, he was leading the two ship of Jordanians as well. One of them went down, he got captured, and he was executed. Part of the problem is there was no one remotely even close that could come and, and help him out. So Cesar became a big focal point that I think we neglected or I don't say yeah, neglected, but it was kind of a, an afterthought, you know, I was like, eh, it's going to be good. So it's interesting to hear, you, know, you see the change and what happened in forward deploying CSAR assets. When you guys were in those strike packages, I guess it was primary CSAR and then like a secondary or tertiary role as some kind of striker usually.
1: Yeah. I mean, they would, you know, um, assuming you guys were, were you Weasel call sign when you yeah. were there? Yeah. Yeah. Weasel. So you, the ones I was in, they, Weasel was always the, uh, the mission commander. And it was always like, Hey, just stay by us. And so we would kind of flow in the same lane as, as we and we would get, you know, a couple, couple bomb targets, you know, yeah. or whatever. And usually we would go do that and then we'd roll right into cast afterwards. So, but they're, they're awesome. They're cool. They would always like make sure we at least got to, to drop something on those things, yeah. you know, cause it's, it's a long, for us to go out to, to Syria from Kuwait, I mean, it's a long trek for us to go do that. Uh, so that, that was, uh, you know that, that that was all cool and all positive. I didn't, we didn't have any that I'm aware of any bad experiences on, on any of those uh, strike bags. Even though, like I said, it's something we don't do. Like that that's not in our uh, training or, or you know or our mindset or mentality at all. It's not what our airplane was designed for. But I think we made it work. They weren't they weren't they weren't waiting on us too long.
0: Yeah, it's <laughs> it's such a we- that was such a weird dynamic, right? Where everyone was coming from, and again, I think we were always obviously we were in Syria because we could go from point A to point B a little bit quicker than you guys. Yeah. But then you're out there alone and afraid if anything goes south. So Yeah. Yeah. I kind of want to transition here. The the big the big piece where I found it. I think people have probably seen this. There's an A ten 2017 that made Air Force Times. An A ten is it's a picture sitting on a runway with no gear uh extended. It's up in the wheel well. So you were involved in a, a mission or training sortie where you had a malfunction of the gun blew the canopy off, did a bunch of damage while you're doing a strafe. Subsequently, the gear wouldn't come down. Can you kind of start from the beginning of that sortie? What was going on that day? And then what, what, what happened?
1: Yeah, sure. So I was the, uh, the instructor in a four ship upgrade, right? So a guy has been a two ship flight for probably about a year. Um, and we we're just doing a BSA, um, uh, basic service attack, dropping bombs and, and shooting the gun and, and doing some Maverick, uh, simulated attacks and, We were, so we do our bombs first and we were doing low angle strafe Um, and the jet, I was flying that day when we were in Kuwait, uh, that that jet uh, during a uh, close air support mission, the gun seized up and stopped firing uh, and they couldn't fix it overseas. So I never flew another combat mission there. We brought it home and our uh, weapons uh, troops had taken it apart and put it back together like just to try to figure out what like no one could understand why this thing was doing what it was doing And so this was a uh, an ocf an operational check flight uh, on the gun um, That I was this is when I was out there uh, as a full-time agr uh, instructor scheduler. I scheduled myself for it because uh, It's uh, you get to go out with like a little over half gun and kind of put it through its paces. Normally, we would shoot about a hundred rounds a uh, training mission and I was gonna go shoot 600 um, so yeah, sure, I'll do it and uh, so we had done uh there was like a profile i was supposed to do with the gun um just to put it through all different kind of paces it could uh it could go through uh, before they would sign it off and on the second pass it was a uh, two target strafe so we do the time we do low angle strafe so it's like a three to five ideally like a five degree dive angle um and you can do one burst or you can do two um two target strafe. so there's two tanks and i'm going to shoot both of them so i'm going to open fire at about a mile slant range and then um at point set, a shift and then shoot the other one at about 0.7 uh mile slant range
0: how high are you starting well, how are you how high do you guys start for low angle stroke
1: so i'm running in at 100 feet um and then i unmask to acquire and it usually you know you end up you know probably six to eight nine hundred feet at the apex and then you roll out and you just drive it into a mile and then that's when you would start shooting so um first, first trigger squeeze on this, everything works fine. I shift. And at this point I'm probably at 150, 130 feet, uh, AGL. And then the gun just locked up and I'm like, Oh shit, there it goes. You know? Uh, and then all of a sudden it's like, I'm just like completely dazed and like thrown back in my seat and there's just paper flying everywhere. And I'm like, what the, you know? And, and, uh, I just pull back on the stick to get, to get away from the ground. And that's when I'm like, I kind of look around, I'm like, shit, my canopy's gone. Like that doesn't make sense. You know, like, So, um, lower my seat to get out of the (laughs) wind blast, and then so then I can at least get my wits about it. Like I said, it felt like a sucker punch. Um, you know, it was just, it was just like just a a very confusing few seconds that are like what just happened, yeah. Um, and then I realized so the way the Grayling Range is set up, the army owns half, and then actually the army owns the whole thing, they lease out the bombing range to us, but they're out there shooting uh artillery, uh, and 50 cal and stuff, and so we had a uh deconfliction line where we couldn't go any further south. And then I realized I'm like right in the middle of the army artillery that's shooting, uh, right where you want to be. Yeah, exactly. So I'm like yelling on the radio to get them to shut off the artillery and they, they can't hear me, you know, cause it's, you know, it, it's, it's super loud. And, uh, so it's like, what, what are you saying? You know, the RCO is just all confused. And so I'm like, well, I just, you know, duck down, get skinny and fly out of here. And then, uh, <laughs> have my wing, my wingman join up. Uh, he was one of our wingmen in the flight was an SCF pilot. So we had him rejoin up just because he's, he's more familiar with uh, the systems and everything on the on the jet than the other guys would have been. So we climbed up uh, 2,000 feet, to the uh, controlled ejection altitude. We climbed up about to that. And there was um, like some thick uh, cumulus clouds out there, so we kind of were you know maneuvering around those as we were uh, going towards Alpena, which is a uh, it's a combat readiness training center that's in northern Michigan. It's about 40 miles in the range, so that's where uh, our primary divert is off of the. Uh, off our bombing range, so uh, head over there and do a controllability check, uh, battle damage check, all this. There's a bunch of, you know, I uh, wiggled mess up with a bunch of panels flapping underneath the uh, uh, underneath the nose where the gun is, um, and it, it's not unheard of that the A-10 lands gear up. You know, it's kind of designed as a combat uh, redundancy in it where the wheels are exposed. Uh, you can land; it'll rest on its main without the nose touching, and you do have braking capability. So it's not, uh, and that happens every couple of years. Um so I'm like all right man we'll try to get the gear down and see what happens and I go to lower it and he's right underneath me in a uh, chase formation you know about 10 feet or so and he's like uh as soon as I Laura he's like put the gear back up and he's, so the door had tried to open for the nose but it got stuck uh in one of the panels it was open um and but the mains were coming down but in the 810 you can land you know the checklist says all gear up or all gear down but nothing in between anything in between is, a, is an ejection uh recommendation so uh luckily the mains came back up and I was like all right well then I don't know why the canopy's gone. Uh makes no sense to me. How the how <laughs> yeah. the gun and the canopy would be would be connected. I don't know. Like I don't really trust the ejection seat at this point. You know, I don't really want to bail out of this uh out of this aircraft. And so like we're just gonna land gear up um and go in. And we went in. Um, you know, I couldn't talk, couldn't talk to tower, couldn't talk to anybody. So my wingman was like kind of relaying. I I could yell to him enough to where he could understand what I was saying, but uh basically hear, they did you hear him gave his – well, yeah, I could actually hear him just fine. It was just, uh, he couldn't hear me. Uh, and I could hear the tower. And they're like, yep, your landing's at your own risk uh, type of deal. And uh, we go in, land, and, you know, those wheels, um, they uh, they were exposed. They ended up um, uh, blowing, you know, like they, uh, I guess the brakes seized up when I was breaking down the runway and uh, both tires blew, uh, which was actually, when the first one blew, I started to fishtail off the runway. Uh, oh, and that was like my fear all along was like, if, if I couldn't control it off the runway, then I'm just like sitting there out in the open, you know, about to eat a bunch of dirt, uh, wow. with a jet on top of me. But, um, the other one blew and then the jet settled and it just grinded to a halt and did an emergency ground address. And, uh, I'm a short guy, but so I, I thought without the gear down, I'd be good to just jump out the side, but it was even uh, more of a drop than I thought it would be. And kind of busted up my ankle a little bit on the oh, runway man. as I jumped out of it and hobbled away with the, you know, a little shameful hobble off the side of the chair. <laughs> But, but, uh, yeah, no, that was, that was it, man. The whole thing for like when the, when the, when the gun exploded to when we landed, it was like 20 minutes. So it really, you know, I don't know. There really wasn't a lot of time to do much other than, can we get the gear down? Nope. All right. Let's just go ahead and roll the dice with the gear up.
0: That's wild. Um, so I'm backing up some from rolling in at 900 feet ish to rolling down the chute. How long are you on final there roughly?
1: Um, it, you know, in BSA you kind of you're, you're practicing the mechanics of shooting so it's a little longer than normal than what you would be tactically um okay. but you're probably from when I start to roll out on final to I'm on the trigger I don't know five six seconds probably
0: yeah and then you said I mean you uh, you realize the gun you recognize the gun seized and then yeah. the canopy and then the chaos ensued so it's probably a half a potato or something like that I, I assume your tapes probably still recorded you know it's,
1: it's funny the tape didn't the tape was broken when i and i called the red ball for it and they're like yeah just press without it so there's no no hud footage of mine of it of any of it at all oh man uh,
0: that would have been that's 100 percent truth too yeah. <laughs> not, yeah. didn't forget to turn your tapes on
1: <laughs> yeah so so no hud tape on it so i i everything's just kind of like you know guesstimation on on the altitude and, and all that stuff but um, the reason the canopy actually went off was when the gun exploded. You, you got the um, t-handle, the ejection on the side of the jet. You know, you see like the little warning on the side, uh, right underneath where the pilot sits, so they could pull that uh, handle, blow the canopy, and, and get a uh, incapacitated crew member out of, or pilot out of the uh, out of the jet. Well, that debris when the gun exploded uh, snagged that wire and just pulled it and just ripped it no, off. Okay, no okay. I was going to yeah. ask,
0: like, I mean, how are those two connected? Because I would assume the canopy is like electric. Yeah, yeah, like a separate hydraulics yeah. or something like that, but not tied. Yeah. No, them, yeah.
1: Really. Yeah. No, yeah. They're, they're definitely not connected, but that, that's how, uh, that's how that, that ended up, uh, ended up happening. So I guess it just luckily, you know, at all the times before that hadn't happened. Um, but yeah, just, to, I don't know. Yeah.
0: The golden BB. I, I mean, I cannot imagine. Cause you say you're at 130 feet, the Viper low stray strafe recovery, 75 feet. So you guys gotta be somewhere same. around there. So, yeah, same. I mean, there's not a whole lot of time between 150 feet and the ground period when you're going 300-ish knots, let yeah. alone when the canopy blows off and you're trying to figure out what's going on. Obviously, survival instinct of getting getting away from the trees and uh, pointing to the blue sky, but I can't imagine just the chaos and the confusion that would have created for me. I would just been like, Yeah, what is happening right now?
1: Yeah. And I reached over at one point to like to try to mess with my radios and then like the wind snagged my arm back and I had to like pull it with my other arm to get it back out of like the wind blast. Um and then after that I'm just like I'm not doing anything. I'm just hunkering down and uh just flying this thing with like the stick basically like under my chin as I'm as I'm hunched over.
0: But, the, you know, the Viper checklist if you lose the canopies like lower the seat. Did you actually yeah. lo- did you actually lower the seat?
1: Oh yeah, all the way. Yeah. yeah. And that was so that the um the safety board you know afterwards concluded that so i went out and they took all these pictures of me in the seat so when i lowered the seat i didn't readjust the uh the rudder pedals and so they concluded that since i lowered the seat all the way it was hunched over when we hit the ground or when i hit the ground that initial impact pushed my feet down and and locked up the brakes i don't know if that's true or not but uh so that was like that was the big takeaway whatever changing the checklist was if you lose a canopy lower your seat make sure you readjust your rudder pedals Uh, so you, I mean, so you don't lock your tires
0: kind kinda, of kind of into the weeds on that one fellas <laughs> just, just a little <laughs> yeah. like uh what's uh, what's the bigger picture here what's what's really yeah. going on yeah what's well, i mean so. f-16 i had the seat down all the way flying anyway so i was just looking i was like this if this ever happened like it's just yeah. not going to be good like you're going to be going 200 yeah. knots minimum like it's just <laughs> not going to be good
1: yeah and i'm a i'm a you know, I'm a shorter guy, seat about halfway up type of guy as I sit. So I guess I'm lucky uh, in that regard. And and it wasn't, you know, we do like 45 degree high angle strafe, which which we were going to do. Um, and had that happen in like a 45 degree dive, I think that'd be, I don't, I don't know what you do. I mean, that'd just be terrifying. But um, do you guys I think have, more so. Do you
0: guys have a 60 degree attack too?
1: We do. Yeah, it's more just um, like I, I've done it like twice in 10 years flying the hog. So it's not something, it's not something we do or execute in, in combat or, or really, uh, ever, but it is, there are mills for it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. A 45 degree attack still. That's, that's pretty steep. What, what is that normal? Yeah. What's that altitude and what's that range of like opening fire and recovery look like?
1: So the min altitude, which is what our, uh, cue our BOR-Q is parameters are based off of for 45 degree is there's thin and thick. So if we're going after armor, we would do a thick, what we call a thick mills. And that's a 1500 foot, uh, um, mid altitude. Uh, and then a thin is 4,500 feet in altitude, uh, base your base where you roll in your, you know, around 10 to 12,000 feet, uh, AGL for those.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I'm making stuff up, but I, you probably have been somewhere around like 2000 feet or so. I would imagine had you guys been doing a 45 degree attack on that, right? Ish.
1: Yeah. Yep. Probably. Probably about the time that that would have happened.
0: Yeah. yeah. I just, I, I just cringe like thinking about that.
1: I know. Yeah. So, but yeah, that was it, man. It was, um, you know, it was, it was over. I went, uh, got to take a uh, ambulance to the, uh, to the emergency room. I did, uh, 14 vials of blood. Cause no one knew what to do. That's the other downfall with the guard is like, I just went to the Alpena County regional, whatever emergency room hospital in my, you know, in my flight suit. And they're like, wait, what you need? okay well here's all the here's all the tests they need and they're like all right i guess we'll take both arms and they're just like drawing no you know no one knew what to do with anything and finally like after like a day like active duty safety investigation team got there and and uh and they're like okay that was a little bit excessive uh but here's what we really need and everything's fine everyone can calm down you know
0: just take a deep breath yeah dude that's (laughs) wild man i uh i cannot imagine what that would have have been like so awesome job you're awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for that. Uh, so I just I want to hit a couple of highlights here in the citation, some of which we've already talked about, but while conducting low-angle strafe at approximately 150 feet above the ground, Kevin Rice's gun suffered a catastrophic failure, which resulted in a massive explosion that caused the canopy to jettison from the aircraft, blowing out numerous panels on the belly of the aircraft and caused an unknown flight control and potential engine damage. Without hesitation or direction, You wrestled the jet away from the ground and lowered the seat to reduce the high-speed wind blast, quickly realizing that your flight path was taking you towards a large town of Grayling and the populous I-75 corridor. And with complete disregard for your own safety, you made a selfless decision to remain with the damaged jet and steer away from all the towns and civilian structures, which I think is huge. I know like we've talked about that, at least I have in the sim, right? Like you find yourself in a, populated area and you have some kind of catastrophic failure that is recommended or directs to eject. And do you make this objective call to stick with the jet or not trying to point it away from all the townspeople? Cause obviously that has happened in the past. Uh, it's unfortunate, but that, I imagine that yeah. pro- that pro- that's probably going through your mind there a little bit once uh, after the first four or five potatoes when like what's going on and realize the canopy has gone.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, it's like, that, that's a big, obvious you know big i-75 highway and there's a big city there and and once you're turned away from that there's not a whole lot in northern michigan so we were able to go hold like over you know just essentially farmland um and determine what we were going to do at at that point um so yeah it's initially that's a very congested area and then uh once we were able to fly it away from that initial spot you know then the the damage to civilian was was kind of um you know kind of gone and then it was just to determine whether it was what's the best course of action how do we just trash this jet with an, you know, with an ejection or, or not basically. So
0: did that jet end up flying again?
1: It's, it's, uh, it's sitting at Hill in the depot line, you know, when the, with all the um, budget cuts to the, or the cuts to the A-10, um, they, they kind of, you know, they had to spin the depot line back up to get all the new wings is what I'm told on the jets. And so that's just sitting there like on the side. And as they have time, which they apparently they don't mm-hmm. have a lot there, they work on it. Um, it was supposed to be done like over a year ago. Was the initial timeline and it's, i guess it's still just sitting there
0: i get i mean i've seen some of the pictures like the damage does not look that significant obviously the gun damage and the internal hydraulic lines that's probably the most significant piece of it right
1: yeah it, it was actually it was not even a class a uh which is kind just, of hilarious like you lose the canopy <laughs> gun blows up you land with no gear and it's, it was a class b uh mishap which was less than two million dollars damage was the determining factor in that that's wild so,
0: yeah that's, that's impressive yeah I did yeah. a couple of Class C investigations, which I think that dollar amount ended up being like 250000 or $240,000, and it was like scraping a horizontal stab. Someone did that on a landing, yeah. and so it was like yeah. sheet metal and feather, but it was like, if you did that, if you bellied up a Viper, it's probably going to be more than, uh, it's probably going to be Class A. Yeah,
1: I would think. Yeah, I, I would think. You know, I guess that's one of the, you know, the A-10s more of a simple, rugged, uh, designed airplane. So maybe, you know, that that's a benefit of it. You know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it doesn't, I guess it's, it's not that expensive of an airplane and it's not that expensive to fix when you're not worried about any, uh, um, stealth or, or anything like, you know, sensor type of stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, since the safety board really dug in and found the root cause of popping tires, oh, did yeah. they determine the cause of the gun and what its malfunction was. Cause I mean, again, I would think that's kind of the focus.
1: Yeah, they did, um, and it was, um, you know, the. I'm not going to get into all the wh- how it happened, but the firing pin became loose um, and engaged a or struck a round outside of the chamber, uh, gotcha. which caused an overpressure and an explosion. So, yeah.
0: well, you're yeah. shooting big bullets, you know, the size of like water bottles, so yeah, can do a lot yeah. of damage, a lot,
1: of, a lot of bang. Yep, yep. Wow, that's
0: so. that's wild. I you recently got back probably the past year or so from an Afghanistan deployment, correct?
1: Yep. Yeah. We went uh, last springtime to, uh, uh, back to Afghanistan. Like I said, it was just the, our guard tour, um, calendar, whatever date, dates lined up. That was our three month deployment that we did, um, back there, which is, uh, um, one of the last eight to eight, 10 deployments in Afghanistan. They just pulled all of them out of there now. So they're, they're no longer in theater, but, uh, yeah, so that was, that was pretty cool, I guess. Uh, it was the same, we went to Kandahar, which is the same place I went, uh, my first deployment ever in combat. Uh, and, you know, completely different than than Kuwait. Uh, you know, every deployment's different, but it was, um, the, the country was, uh, you know, not not nearly, even remotely close to the presence when the first time I was there. So that was kind of interesting to see, like all these bobs and all this stuff that we had supported the first time I was there all over Afghanistan were either abandoned, uh, some were used by the Afghanis and some were, you know, had been taken over by, by other, other people. So.
0: Yeah. And that was gonna be my question since you have that perspective and separated by many years. What, what, what did it look like as far as the fight for you guys? What were you doing? You know, the first round versus yeah. what was an average sortie looking like on the second time you were there?
1: So it was actually interesting. Like I wasn't, we weren't expecting a whole lot. The guys who had been there before with all the U S friends there before and like and it was like the fighting was really, uh, really intense. Um, and you don't hear a whole lot about it back, back home. Um, we weren't expecting a whole lot. It was actually like the complete opposite. Cause the only people over there for the most part, while we were there was like special forces or like army Rangers, like very aggressive uh, mindset. And they were going out to, you know, either take down a target or they were not hesitant at all to engage, uh, an enemy just based on their, how, how they approach, uh, their fight versus the conventional forces. And, um so it was actually very kinetic we were uh we were employing uh, a ton of um agr-20s which we had never shot before the laser guided rockets so that was uh that was interesting to do those for the first time uh just a just a lot of strafing uh compared to what i was doing last time so that that was interesting uh we did uh i was kind of talking to you earlier about too we did uh one big strike package on a a very large drug lab that was out there and that was like the size of like Maybe a little smaller, but really close to the size of like a red flag strike package. Um, (laughs) and it's kind of, it sounds weird to do it in Afghanistan when you had two fighter squadrons, you know, the Vipers were at Bagram and the Tens were in, in Kanahar. Um, but the, the target set was, was so much that it was more than we could muster up at at a time to do, to handle with just even our two squadrons. Um, so we had, yeah, we had every platform that was in the, uh, in the Middle East at the time all came up. Um, some of them flew like, 2,000 miles just to even get to Afghanistan to do the strike package. Um, and uh, so that was cool. We, you know, we did uh, the full-on, the you know, the roll call. We had to roll out. All, all the stuff that you, you, you kind of train for at yeah. We don't do it a whole lot in the A-10, but um, we were there. It was, like, right in our backyard for where we were at. Uh, and we were there for the follow-on mission, which was – so we did the initial volley of strike package. There was, you know, probably 80-plus bombs in the air at, at one time from SDBs to 500-pounders. To and then once all the assets from out of country, you know, were done with all their targets, they left. And then the Vipers are up at Bagram, and the six A-10s that we had out, uh, and they had, I think it was a six ship of Vipers uh, from Bagram, and our uh, our A-10s. My myself and the our flight lead and our package commander was our weapons officer, and then I was number two, and we we're both uh, fat instructors, and we started kind of uh, yo-yoing back and forth to the tanker. So one would be on the tanker getting gas, while the other one was not doing fat gay rolls because you're not allowed to do a fat a but we would just be Hey, ground kind give us a, a bunch of targets and then we would just pick who was going to drop what and when. And we were doing coordinated attacks with SDBs, GB38s, GB12s. Couldn't straight up that day, but uh, it went on for, for, for quite a while until we got all the bombs off of uh, off of all the jets. And I know the Vipers are doing it. We, we were doing it too. We were doing like GB12 split laser coats off the same jet with like wing med lasing. <laughs> uh, simultaneous impact. All, all like the weird attacks yeah. that you, you know, are, are in the three one and stuff. You're like, I would never like, when would I ever actually do this? You know, like, we actually were out and doing a lot of that stuff. So that was, that was a, that was a really cool experience actually.
0: You know, that's what's wild is just how much that's changed And here. I mean, probably that strike package you're in other than the opening days of Afghanistan, there's probably nothing like that, you know, for so long, no. uncontested yeah, environment, just yeah. cast wheels and zipping around. Yeah. Um I can say, yeah, my ORI OIR deployment, it was similar, right? There were a lot of strike packages, coalition, so it was yeah. very like red flag-ish. Yeah. Uh, and then obviously a lot of casts so was mixed in. But it was kind of cool to go out there and do the stuff that you do in training. You're like, we'll never we'll never yeah. use this. This is right. It hasn't been used in 15 years. There's no point in doing this. And then here we are doing dive glides and yeah, you know, stuff like that, which is kind of cool.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, it was uh that was uh that was that was pretty wild. And that was like one of my last stories there. And I was like, all right, that's my last deployment. You know, like I said, I got like a year left. And I'm like, all right, that's cool. That's a that's a good one to go out on. Like I'm I'm good.
0: Yeah, going out on a high note.
1: Yeah, for sure. So
0: the so now well, I mean, obviously you fly in the line, uh, in the squadron as a traditional guardsman. So hitting your requirements for the month. People typically say the you know, the one week in a month, two weeks a year, but it's a little bit more than that, obviously. Uh yeah. And then the plan, yeah, for you, just ride it out to next year and then retire and then a full full-time airline guy is that the route
1: yep yeah that's it so and then uh you know another thing if, if people listening aren't, aren't familiar the guard retirement like when i get that it's, it's very different than active duty right you don't you don't see any of that until you're 60 but then certain title 10 deployment or non um, or contingency days will we'll back that up so i'm at like 57 is when i'll start collecting a pension uh so it's, it's there it's a ways away but uh so that's a big difference too with the guard like you know a lot of people think, oh, you're retiring. You know, from the guard, you, you get your pension right away. That's awesome. I'm like, well, no, not quite. I mean, it's it's there, but it's it's a ways down the road.
0: You're gonna miss it. You think
1: I'll miss? You know, probably. I'm, I'm sure you could probably speak to this more than I could. Just like the uh, the Brotherhood, you know, and, and just the squadron life itself. But I'm not gonna miss uh, getting a weekend back every month of my life. Uh, I'm not gonna miss Sunday morning academics at seven a.m. <laughs> you know, sitting there and and all the uh, all the other stuff that goes with it um, is just it's 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 almost enough to make it not worth it it's not quite you know obviously because yeah. it's, it's a blast to fly and, and when you deploy you kind of kind of recages your mind and you know you realize the the importance uh of what you're doing but it does take a lot of your uh, a lot of your time to to keep up with it so
0: yeah that's what i mean if people ask I, I get asked that question i absolutely do miss it I mean, it's the brotherhood you miss i mean obviously flying the viper is a lot of fun there's a lot that goes with it right that's not as much fun and you know, a lot of sacrifices go with it. If I had to go back and do it again, I would do it all over. Like it was well, a gr- great, sure. ex- great experience and put me where I am today. But, uh, yeah. Well, as we kind of wrap up the podcast, I always like to ask guests, you know, if you found yourself, you know, 15 year old two watt walking down the street, is there any advice you would give him tell him to do something different?
1: You know, I'm pretty happy with the, with the, with the route I went in the guard, uh, and everything, I guess if there was something else I could tell me, or if I could look back and do something different, you know, I, I, I want, you know, I really did. When I first started, I wanted to fly the F-16 and that's what I got hired to do, but uh, we got bracked to the, to the A-10 and I just kind of, just kind of stuck with it. And I would have liked to, um, you know, I, I went out to pilot train I'm out to Arizona, but I wouldn't have minded going and doing a guard tour like somewhere else. Like this is where I grew up. This is everything that this is where all my family is and everything like that. And so it's kind of like, you know, I, I've been at Selfridge for my whole career I and mean, everything like that, I really haven't experienced anything else. I kind of wish while I was younger, not necessarily maybe chasing another airplane or anything like that, but going and doing uh, like, there's a lot of opportunities to go to like to Europe or do, do tours with the military outside of, of like the bubble that I've been in like my entire career. And I, I think that's um, you know, it's a plus in the guard that you get to stay in the cockpit. Like I, I'm not going to go do something else, right. I'm going to keep the a 10 forever, but it's also a drawback that you don't get the perspective uh, on everything. And, and there are a lot of opportunities and, uh, where I was in my mind when I was young, it's like, I got to get ready to deploy, which is true. And then I got to get hours because I want to get an interline job. And I wish I would have taken a little more time to um, go out and just broaden my perspective a little bit, maybe go to Europe for a year, do a, do a tour over there, like working with the army or just, just, just something like that, just to get a, um, a more of a, a full broad perspective of what the military really is. Um, it's, it's kind of, as, as I look back on it, I've talked to a lot of guys who have done that and they just, that's one of the highlights of their career was being able to go out and, Um, take like their A10 mindset, go integrate with, you know, some NATO force in Europe or, or, you know, wherever, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of options to go do that type of stuff. And uh, I I shied away from it and I wish uh, looking back on it, I think that would have been a great opportunity, a great experience to go do that.
0: Yeah. Do you think it's uh, good for like a young guy to do like early in the career before family and things like that? Or is it for sure? Get a little more experience.
1: Yeah, exactly. So like once it's like, you know, anything else, like once family starts to get involved and you start to grow as a family, it's like that. Now you're dragging, you know, people around with you. And it's just, uh, you know, for an active duty, maybe that doesn't seem like, you know, that's just the norm. You know, you're going to PCS somewhere else, but for a guard guy, that's just like most people, this is where their roots are and you don't just up and leave. You know what I mean? It's just a, it's just a very different mindset. And so while you're young, you have these narrow windows to go do and experience certain things like that. And uh, I personally kind of shied away from it because I was focused on my qualifications getting the upgrades and, and you know getting as many many hours and, and trying to get an airline job so yeah it, it worked out I mean I, I mean I don't have any regrets but that would be a, a different path that i could have uh, i could have done it would have would have been some probably a, a great experience a lot of good memories with it
0: yeah no doubt well so. to what uh, i really appreciate you taking the time to chat today i know people are uh,
1: enjoy hearing hearing your story man and
0: to me it's just like wild it's awesome to be able to actually meet you virtually and chat with you because after you know seeing the a-10 sitting on the ramp uh it was just it's wild so that's such an incredible story so awesome job with that again thanks for joining me today
1: cool right all right man appreciate it awesome
0: thanks again for listening hope you enjoyed today's podcast be back in two weeks with another round